0: everybody, what's up? Welcome to Bible Prophecy Talk. My name is Chris. It's good to be back with you again today. Alright, so I did take a little bit of a break from podcasting and doing the Bible Prophecy Timeline series. I should be getting back to that this week, starting to study for Part 6, I believe is next. In this episode, I want to do a number of things. I want to talk about the idea of vaccinating kids ages 5 to 11 and why I think that is a pretty bad idea. I want to talk about some competing theories for how societal collapse might happen, basically how it sort of ends up in the same place anyway, but it does change things a little bit. We'll talk about that. I wanted to mention a proof text, which I think I found yesterday, which further bolsters the case that the Two Witnesses ministries take place in the second half of the three and a half year period. At the end of the podcast, I will play the audio from a 16 minute video I made Uh, intended to be distributed to your church leaders or elders, which is at the same time practical, but also an overview of why it may be a good time for the churches to start building um, resilient systems for food, water, and these kinds of things, anticipating either a short-term or um, uh, uh, long-term issues that may arise in which they need to uh, take care of their congregation. So you'll know more about what I mean when I start to play that audio. First, let me talk about this issue with vaccinating kids ages 5 to 11, and here what I'm going to do is read from an email that I composed to send to my friends and family, which is just a few bullet points about why it's a bad idea, as well as links to medical uh, papers to back up some of the things that I'm saying. If you would like to copy and paste this to send to somebody that you would like To know this information, you can go to uh, the description section of this episode for at BibleProphecyTalk.com for 11-7-2021. Okay, so number one, kids are three to six times more likely to get heart damage from the vaccine than they are to be hospitalized with COVID-19. And there I linked to a medical study there. And I should say that I think it's more likely six times. I say three to six times just to be in line with the official numbers. This is something that you can fact check. And the fact checkers, while, of course, they'll say, oh, it's not that important. Don't pay attention to it. They will agree. Yes, kids are three to six times the numbers, like 3.1 to six something uh, more times likely to get heart damage from the vaccine than they are to be hospitalized with COVID-19. So that's a major problem with your risk-benefit analysis, but that's really what we're going to talk about as we go through this. Number two, kids, especially boys, seem to be much more likely than any age group to get vaccine-induced myocarditis or pericarditis from the COVID-19 vaccine. Again, I link a, a study here in which you can see the reporting is just sky high in this age group. Now, I think you could probably make the case that the reporting is higher with kids because kids are, and I made this point in the vaccine video that I did, that kids, they're more likely to be reported because it's so much more out of the norm. It's harder to explain away, hey, this kid had a debilitating heart problem, uh, because it takes a lot to get a kid to go to the hospital where as with older people, they've been trying to say, ah, he was, you know, he was going to have a heart problem anyway. He was old, you know, anything that they can do to explain it away. So I, I do think that I saw something recently from, I think it was Dr. Peter McCullough that was explaining some of the mechanisms behind why kids actually are more prone to this kind of heart related, uh, uh, vaccine induced uh, problems. And his suggestion was that it was going to get a lot worse as you got younger. And in other words, the reason why kids were were showing this more is going to be even worse the, the lower the age group that you get. So maybe it was something to do about the, the, the thing that works for kids. That is to say their robust immune response to COVID-19 and the reason that they don't get COVID-19 or at least bad cases of COVID-19 is the same thing that puts them at risk for these kinds of heart things. But Uh, Moving on to the next one. Don't let anyone tell you that myocarditis is mild or rare. It is a permanent heart scarring that in many cases prevents kids from doing any activity like sports for the rest of their lives, but it is fatal in 50% of the cases, though it takes five years to kill the patient on average. That's with normal myocarditis. They don't know how fatal the new vaccine induced type is yet, though it seems to be more severe in the early stages, suggesting it will be in the later stages as well. So here again, I have some uh, medical studies linked and a couple of things I want to say, you know, when myocarditis first started being reported, they said, oh, you know, it's so rare. There's only a few hundred cases. And now that's like at least 10,000 cases. And that's just, again, what we know of. And of those, you know, half of those kids are going to die. Half of those kids in five years will be dead because of myocarditis. It does not go away in many of these cases. In some cases it does. But even if the, it doesn't kill them, it, it's a permanent thing that will be with them. And here I'm just dealing with, you know, stuff that I can quote medical papers on, right? Right? I mean, there, are, there is this huge list of vaccine-induced injuries that are not being admitted to yet. But, this is, but these are the ones that have been admitted to, the, the heart issues mostly, so it's where I'm sort of focusing because you can really do actual risk-benefit analysis that people will understand with it. Number three, which actually should be number four now that I think about it, but it says no one knows the long-term problems this vaccine will cause, but based on adverse reactions so far, there are likely to be many. Long-term side effects with other vaccines are notoriously bad, which is why before uh covid drug companies had a m- minimal wait time of 7 years before being allowed to roll them out the most concerning long term effect for the covid-19 vaccine is consequences to the immune system including ade and of course reproductive issues especially in girls i will include an updated list with the covid-19 uh, of problems with the COVID-19 vaccines in a link at the end with all the links to the studies. So one of the things that just blows my mind about this is that it makes no logical sense. It's almost like the only way that you can buy into this is that you're just kind of riding the wave of this mass psychosis where people are just doing whatever they're told for a while and before anybody has a chance to sort of think about what they're doing. And I really do think that that's maybe what's happening here because this makes no Logical sense to give this to kids. Uh, A video that made the rounds this week was in the, I think it was the approval board. So it was probably the FDA and one of these sessions where the public is sort of uh, cross examining the FDA from their findings, from their studies. And they were saying, okay, well, according to your numbers here, kids are more likely this is going to kill more kids than it's going to save from COVID-19. There is just no way around that from your own analysis, the stuff that you will admit to, which is not very much. uh, But just based on that, you're going to kill more kids than you could possibly hope to save with this. What do you have to say about that? And of course, lots of weaselly language, but the net result was, yeah, we know that's the case, but we think it's better for society. So what they're saying is that by vaccinating the kids, you're going to save grandma and maybe have something to do with herd immunity or something, you know, very nebulous will will help society by vaccinating the kids. So we need to kill the kids to save grandma is basically the language here. So it, it's so obviously wrong. And so obviously nonsense they're, they're, that it feels like something is going to give big time when they start to roll this out to kids. And so that kind of helps me transition into my next point about the competing versions of societal breakdown. So if you have been paying attention to those corners of the internet that aren't quite as censored, you have probably noticed a ton of massive protests all around the world. And this has been going on really for months now. And every time I see one, it's just growing. It's from a new country I didn't know was super mad. And there are just thousands of people on the street and it's getting pretty serious. I mean, it's getting violent and I mean, you could hear these people chanting and I'm thinking, wow, that sounds like a war is about to happen in that country. And it probably is. And really these, these massive protests started in other countries because for example, in France, when they said, we're going to start vaccinating their kids, that was sort of the line that France drew. And as you know, it's getting more like that, as this is going to have ripple effects all across the world of what the CDC and the FDA has done, it, it's going to make it even worse in other countries. And I think I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but the reason why you don't see a similar reaction in America, though you are starting to see some reaction in, in, in blue states and blue cities and stuff like that, is because of the state system we have in America where... When, they, when it gets too bad in one place, we have the option to move to a different state. And a lot of people have done that. Basically, what I'm saying is that the breaking point for a lot of people is the kids issue. And that's where I think you're going to see a lot of lines being drawn in the sand. And when you don't have anywhere else to go in other countries, that means a hardline stance. It's going to get ugly. It's going to get revolutionary. It's going to be serious business. Add to that unrest of course, that we're going to be dealing with inflation and massive shortages of all kinds of stuff. And a lot of people are about to lose their jobs. And I could name a half a dozen other things that are problematic. So what do I mean by competing theories of societal collapse? I think that there are two possibilities if we take the premise that we will go into a world government. So this is somewhat of a pessimistic view, but it takes as a premise the idea that the people with the overwhelming amounts of money and power here are trying their best with all their money and power and influence to get us to a world government. So that is their goal. The question is, if we are not powerful enough or, you know, if, if the Lord doesn't intervene, basically, um, then that's where we're going. The question is, how do we get there? And I think that there are two real possibilities, and they sort of depend on the nature of the fallout of the vaccine i think as much as it does about censorship and i'll try to explain what i mean by that so in the and i've held both of these and uh, and talked about them both on the podcast at different times and i am sort of waffling between the two but so the first idea is that it really doesn't matter how much the vaccine kills people let's say this winter comes and you know millions of people die and you know they do the the thing they're doing right now is like whoa we don't know why all these people are in the hospital dying of blood clots. Who knows? It's a big mystery, you know? And that has a lot to do with censorship because we certainly know that censorship is sort of gobbling up all the good media at this point and it will continue to do so. And so that's happening on the one end and it really doesn't matter what the vaccine damage is. It could kill billions of people if that censorship machine just keeps suppressing the truth. It's kind of like a China version of reality where they just have complete control over the narrative. So therefore they have complete control over at least half the population, because you always have to just put in your calculations that half the people on the planet have no ability not to believe the government. They just will. You just have to assume that half the people are always going to believe the government because it's a personality type as much as it is male and female it's a believe the government not believe the government uh uh split at least it may not be exactly that but that's the way you got to think of it i think and then you've got the other another 25 percent that got you know pressured and conjoled or whatever into getting the vaccine and they're sort of as uh monica perez says uh, sort of vax you know they they didn't want to, but since they got the vaccine, they're sort of on team vaccine now because there's a psychological component to where they can't really admit that they did something stupid, and they can't admit, especially that they did something stupid to their kid. So they're team vaccine, and they're going to look for any anything you can give them that will validate their uh, position. So that's 75%. But no matter what you do, there's always going to be let's call it 20% of people that just will not go along with the plan. They won't get your vaccine. They won't get your world ID. They won't get any of the stuff that you need to be a good global citizen. And, and, you know, even if you just thought about this in terms of nationalism, people that loved their country in Germany, it's like, I don't want to be a part of the world system. I want to be a German Uh, vaccine or no vaccine. There's always going to be a small ish, hopefully not too small percentage of people that just won't go along with the program. But since the premise in this scenario is that we are going to a world government, you are going to lose your national sovereignty. So what do you do with that 20 percent, especially if you are saying that this world government is going to take the form of some kind of communist system? And here's where the crux of the problem is. That's a big change. You know, I think I gloss over that sometimes in this. That's a massive change of a, a hurdle to go from every government across the world has a sort of semblance of democracy to global communism i mean that's a big jump you know um so but let's just say for the sake of argument that it does happen they've got this 20 percent. you have to deal with them they have to be re-educated if they can't be re-educated they will eventually be uh, killed that's just how it has happened in history so i do think that It necessitates civil war in a lot of the different countries, and that civil war can be a big thing or a small thing, depending on the number of people and the different things that happen. I think these civil wars would be further used in this scenario of, let's say, very 1984, top-down censorship, total control of the narrative version of events. Um, you know, it, the, the civil war would be more further evidence to demonize this group and say, wow, how, look how bad they are. They're the scum of the earth. This is why we can't have guns and all the different sort of, you know, uh, things will, will play into their narrative as that plays out. But it eventually ends up with, you know, after that short-term chaos, you end up in a, in a global government. So that's option one, uh, option two is something that I'd been thinking more seriously about the last couple weeks, which is that the vaccine damage becomes completely and totally obvious. And um, I think that's why I started off talking about the kids' situation, because I think that that could be the problem. Of course, my main thing is less about myocarditis or periocarditis, or however you pronounce that, mycocarditis, as uh, Alex Jones always says. But um, it's less about that stuff as it is the ADE or the immune issues, or especially if this ends up having a problem with uh, fertility in girls. And I should mention it here to side note before I get into the second one, this concept of this has also been going around the last week that did not get as much play as I think it should have, which is they showed there was this uh, computer programmer, as best as I can tell, that did this analysis of the lot numbers of both the Pfizer and Moderna and Johnson and Johnson vaccines, or at least Pfizer and Moderna, I'm not sure about Johnson and Johnson, in which, and they made this, they make this very, very hard in the VAERS system. If you've ever looked through the VAERS system, it's like intentionally nonsense to try to make correlations it's so convoluted of data. Um, but every VAERS entry is supposed to have a lot number, which lot number caused this bad reaction. And so what this person did is basically write some SQL code to match up bad reactions with lot numbers. And what he found, and this, you know, was validated and, and, and made the rounds, was that 100% of the deaths with the vaccines were occurring in 5% of the lot numbers. And here's the the big story, in my opinion, is that it was true with both Moderna and Pfizer the exact same distribution. And I think a lot of people are looking at that as some kind of uh, quality control issue. Like, oh, wow, the little metal shavings are in some of these. But no, not if it's in both of them. Not if it's in both Pfizer and Moderna. That distribution makes no sense. What does make sense, and what this has been talked about for a long time before I think this now proof of this has come out, is that, that Pfizer was doing different, um, and, and Moderna was doing different, Uh, things with different lot numbers to see what would happen, um, different amounts of it. Now, if you remember why the mRNA vaccines never did work for 20 years uh, is because they could never figure out how to make it work. If you gave somebody too much of it, they would have uh, really bad reactions. But if you gave them too little, they wouldn't show any clinical effect. So that's why it never got off the ground is because you couldn't give enough person to have a clinical effect without them having a bad reaction. So it looks like they were doing experiments on people. So if one lot number shows the majority of deaths, I mean, think about how obvious that is for lawsuits. I know these uh, companies are supposed to be immune from lawsuits, but if they can prove that, I mean, that's a huge deal. And if you can prove that it's the same in Pfizer and Moderna, it's a it's a blockbuster uh, finding. But anyway, so the second, uh, second possibility is that everybody finds out. The kids are made infertile with this. The generations are lost and everybody knows it. ADE, billions of people die and everybody knows it. I get a little bit, and so basically where I'm going with this is that society absolutely breaks down. Number one, you've got almost everybody in the in the medical system right now has been vaccinated. So you're not, they're already short-staffed or what happens if they get sick, right? in massive numbers. Um, but really if everybody starts to realize that something bad has been done, that we've all just been in this haze and did something incredibly, unbelievably stupid, then they're going to, they're going to take people out in the streets and it's going to be, there's going to be no need for Nuremberg trials, uh, because people are going to take it upon themselves to just absolute chaos is going to go all across the world with anybody that ever said that convinced somebody else to take the vaccine. It's going to be. A madhouse if that scenario became true. So a couple things got me thinking about this. And one is, and I should have looked this up, but it's not event 201, but it was a similar one. This is one Monica Perez talks a lot about. And I'm speaking to Monica Perez from the Propaganda Report, which is a great podcast to subscribe to. But she uh, was talking about how in one of these sort of war game situations a few years ago, talking about a virus and they gave a vaccine for the virus, but the vaccine killed a lot of people. And, and so in one in part of this war game, they're deciding what to tell the public. Should we continue to hide the vaccine uh, deaths or should we like make martyrs of them and say how wonderful and heroic they were to take the vaccines or these kinds of things? But I, I call this theory sort of the Kissinger theory And what I mean by that is that early in the early stages of the pandemic, Henry Kissinger was quoted as saying um, something to the effect of COVID-19 is an opportunity for the new world order. He's one of the guys that always talks about the new world order, you know, and uh, because people will turn on their governments. And of course, that's the that's definitely happening all over the world and everywhere. I mean, I don't know how you could ever fix that if your goal is to say, you know, we go into option one where everybody becomes government worshipers in a China-like situation, then we're going the wrong way for that. I mean, we're going into complete hate your government, tear down your government territory is where it seems like we're going. And if the vaccine thing falls out, which would seem make sense of, uh, this weird push for the vaccines that doesn't make any sense. It's like they have one year before, because you know, that's what that's the reason why we haven't, I mean, take the Moderna, the, the mRNA thing out of the equation. The reason why we never have made a vaccine for a coronavirus before, mRNA or not, is because of that second wave. Yes, you show antibodies in the first wave, but it killed all the animals when they were reinfected with when it came back around. So in this scenario, option two, you're going to have people dying from the effects of the vaccine. You're going to have people dying from the lack of hospital care because of the people in the hospitals all got vaccinated. You'll have complete distrust of the system. You will have people tearing down, you know, media companies and these corporations will just be just major targets no matter where they go in the world. I mean, that's that's the kind of chaos that would ensue in this scenario. So... And there are some pros and cons to this view. I think one of the pros is that it makes sense of that big jump from capitalism to communism. If there was an extended period of just chaos, coupled with a complete distrust of corporations that for the last two years just kept telling everybody to get this vaccine, which already nobody trusts the media anyway, and nobody trusts these corporations or whatever, so that gets us to that place of global communism to a better degree, though we would have to find some way to trust the new system, which has to be presented as sort of the alternative to that, or at least just a way to eat again. Uh, Somebody with a plan to give us food at the end of that could also just be, could give us whatever. So that could be the one way. The reasons I don't think much of the theory is that if you think of, the World Economic Forum and Klaus Schwab and sort of their big overarching concept is this sort of, what do they call it? I I forget the terminology, but it's basically like fascism where there's a merger of corporations and governments. And that's the sort of the structure of the new system. And in this scenario, that really doesn't work because the corporations will be massively distrusted. I mean, how could Pfizer possibly be a part of this new system or many of these media corporations, for example, how could anybody ever trust them again in the midst of that? Unless they just, again, assert control because they have food or something like that. It could be that the people behind the corporations the, the with the actual money, that they can interchange between corporations. They're not actually a part of the system per se. Uh, they're the people that are actually pulling the strings and all this, and they can be a part of whatever's coming next, whatever they call it, the the kings, basically. And I guess that's the point I want to make. What if, what if the thing that we're going to go to next is so qualitatively different than anything that we've known before? Like, what if the, when the dust settles, we really do have something that doesn't have corporations anymore, but, but Kings or something. What if that does make sense of the 10 Kings at the, uh, start of the end times, uh, that are described in, in Daniel and revelation, etc.? So what if that's really not allegory, but they really are Kings. So I'm just saying there's a possibility that, that we actually go to something entirely different. Um, that being said, I, Honestly, I think the more likely scenario based on what we're seeing now is that first scenario that it's more China style, top down, complete control. The vaccine fallout really isn't going to be, you know, it'll be significant, but not just earth shattering significant. And they just use all these uh, mechanisms of control and censorship to push us to ultimately a world government. Yes, there will have to be that short time of dealing with that 20% that won't do anything, uh, in all the different countries or won't go along with it. But you know, that's just what they'll do. So that, that seems to me the more logical scenario, but again, it all comes down to what happens basically this winter, what happens, what is the true nature of this vaccine is the question mark. If it's super, super, super bad, then I think option two is more likely. If it is not super bad, then option one is probably more likely. I know that was sort of a downer and i do think that there is another option in which liberty prevails and that is the option that we should continue to pray for and protest against and uh you know do all the things that we can do uh to be just normal good citizens this is a this is an evil thing that's happening and historians if free historians exist in the future there will be no doubt about what's happening here there will be no doubt that this is an evil totalitarian attempt at a takeover in which mass murder is happening. The only reason that we can't see it is obviously what it is, is because we're right in the middle of it. And um but but make no mistake, if 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 they don't succeed in completely taking us over, which is a big gamble on their part. uh, And remember Satan doesn't have he doesn't get to just dictate when the end times happens. He you know, sets up systems and he runs it through to conclusions. And typically the more evil they are, the harder they fall. Uh, He does not have access to when the end times are starting. And so, and he can't make them start. So unless God is, allows it, it's not going to be the actual end times, period, full stop. So it just ends up being another evil regime. Anyway, let me move on to this theory about Elijah and the two witnesses, So I did a podcast, oh, I don't know, a few months ago in which I talked about the timing of the two witnesses and talked about all the reasons I think that the two witnesses ministry, which we know is three and a half years long. It says that explicitly in Revelation 11, but there are arguments as to whether or not that three and a half years starts at the beginning of the seven year period, or does it start at the midpoint? And there are lots of arguments and pros and cons. I, and a lot of people that I respect, in fact, every commentary or every detailed study I've ever read on the actual timing of trying to cross all the T's and dot the I's always puts the two witnesses at that second half. Um, but some people have issues with it primarily because they can't conceive of people, you know, still giving gifts and things at the end of the seven year period and whatnot. Um, anyway, I go through all that in that podcast, but this is yet another reason why I think that the two witnesses have to be in that second half of the three and a half years. So uh, it comes from the Mount of the Transfiguration passage, and this is seen in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and which uh, Jesus goes with his three disciples to the top of this mountain is transfigured before them. Moses and Elijah appear, the audible voice of God. Uh, Peter puts his foot in his mouth, and uh, then they're coming down from the mountain, and it says this. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one of the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the son of man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So I want to zero in on this phrase. Elijah does come and he will restore all things. This is a reference to. Uh, Malachi 4, 6, And he will turn the hearts of their fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And actually, now that I think about that, that that makes sense of this theory as well, this decree of utter destruction. So, okay, so what I'm saying here is this phrase, and he will restore all things, is pretty all-encompassing. And if you think about, of course, Jesus in another place says that John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah, but he is obviously not Elijah himself. I mean, I, Elijah was there with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. And a lot of, but in other words, Elijah will also uh, return a second time to to fulfill his ministry, to usher in the Messiah in, when he takes his kingdom. And that's why a lot of people understand one of the two witnesses to be Elijah. For example, he is calling down fire from heaven, something that Elijah does, something, uh, uh, anyway, the, a lot of people understand that to be Elijah, and if you take this phrase "and he will restore all things" as part of the thing that Elijah, i.e., one of the two witnesses, will do, how can that possibly make sense in that first uh, that first three and a half year period? If you know, so let me read real quick uh, Revelation eleven, the relevant passage about if you remember the the three witnesses, uh, they they. Uh, for three and a half years, they preach against this evil system, and they're hated for it. Basically, the people in Jerusalem celebrate when they're finally killed. Uh, but after they are killed, it says this. But after a, th- but after the three and a half days, so they they laid, they are lying dead in the streets for three and a half days. A breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet. And great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified, and they gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is coming soon. Now listen to what happens next. The seventh angel blew his trumpet and there was a loud voice in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of the of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sat on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, etc. So this is the moment. Their resurrection is the moment that the kingdom of the world becomes the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is at the blowing of the seventh trumpet. Some people have trouble with this because yes, there are seven bowls of wrath that follow this point, but it's right before this. It's before the seven bowls of wrath that Jesus actually claims his throne. You'll see this a lot in pre-wrathers, Charles Cooper and your Albert Sharpies, and I'm sure Van Campen and Rosenthal uh, may have different variations on it, but it's basically the same thing, which is uh, based on Daniel 12, in which Daniel describes that there is, in addition to that seven-year period, after that, there is a 30-day period and a 45-day period after that. It has been named the Reclamation Period, which starts now, according to this theory, that is to say. And you can see this actually in, I saw a really great diagram that Charles Cooper now has on his website, uh, uh, Pre-Wrath Rapture. But anyway, the the throne is claimed essentially at the resurrection of the two witnesses. The next event is Jesus claims his throne. It's called the reclamation period in which the vials of wrath are then poured out on the the world that actually uh, culminates in Armageddon. So Armageddon actually takes place 30 days after um, uh, uh, the the seven-year period is ended. And then the 45-day period after that is sometimes called the restoration period in which a number of events happen. These are all sort of charted and, and you can see them in different uh, things. Uh, this is not, as far as I know, a pre rath required teaching. I think that most pre-millennials would agree with this. It's just that, you know, I'm, I'm very familiar with pre rathers that have done the, the legwork and in, 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 in charting out what's happening in each of these 30-day periods and all that stuff. So I'm, I don't think this is exclusive to pre-wrath or anything like that, but it is something that you can be very confident in if you want to dig into it. But the main point here is that it's a good uh, proof text that this makes sense of the idea that Elijah restores all things because it's at Elijah's death and resurrection that the 70th week ends, Israel is restored, which is the point of the 70th week of Daniel, and the kingdom begins. Jesus takes his throne right after that. So it's got that chronology that you look for with Elijah and the Messiah as well. Okay, so the next thing I'm going to play the audio from this video about uh, prepping your church for difficult times, and I would highly encourage you if you're, you know, a pastor or an elder or, you know, like me, neither, but you know, has uh, influence in your church or whatever, and you feel strongly about this. I put this in a video. I used a lot of, you know, stock footage and this kind of thing. Uh, and it's a standalone video, so you don't have to send them this podcast with all the craziness in it or whatever. Uh, you can just send them that video on Rumble, and uh, you can see that embedded in this episode's description. Again, this is Bible Prophecy Talk eleven seven two 7 2021 So here is the audio from that, and I will uh, sign off. There are a number of possible events, such as natural disasters, societal breakdown, wars, and famines, that would require a local church to provide basic care for its congregation. Local churches providing such care to their church members is seen in the New Testament. The early church was often on the run and being persecuted, so it was important for them to band together. In light of current events, which seem to suggest a return to difficult times, it is prudent to prepare the local church to be able to weather some of these storms. One way to accomplish this is by building basic systems for shelter, water, food, and communications that are independent from municipal sources, both for short-term and long-term scenarios. There are very detailed checklists out there, such as this one from freedompreppers.com that I found. I don't necessarily endorse the website, but it is a very detailed checklist for things that you would wanna have in this kind of situation, which are for general use in preparedness. And it would be ideal to work with those people in your congregation who are interested in this project to build towards the things that that list suggests. But here I will focus on the most critical systems which should be built first, as well as those that are specific to a church congregation and its continued ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ, even in the most troubled times. It should also be noted that this is going to be a very brief overview based on my limited research and your system should be based on your individual church's needs and location and it will utilize the gifts and specific knowledge and talents of your congregation One way to utilize those diverse gifts is by appointing a few people who are interested and faithful to meet regularly and come up with proposals for the church elders to approve. Right from the outset, there should be clarity on what they are trying to accomplish. For example, there should be a plan for short-term resilience, such as in the event of natural disasters. But it's important to understand the nature of the long-term scenarios in order to better prepare. For example, if the committee agrees that they are planning for an event like a total supply chain breakdown or a war or something where society is effectively on its own for a year or more, then it changes the nature of and cost of your preparedness project. So it's absolutely critical that they determine what they are planning for ahead of time, especially in light of current supply chain issues. That being said, I'm now going to list a few of the things I think are the most critical. Energy. Some thoughts on generators versus off-grid solar systems. Generators certainly have their place, and there should be one or more generators on campus, preferably with multiple fuel sources. Dual fuel generators can use gas or propane. Ideally, you should have a certified electrician install a transfer switch on the side of the building, which will cut the power from the main grid and allow you to power the circuits of the building with the generator. The amount of appliances you will be able to power in this case will depend on the size of the transfer switch, the size of the generator, and the amount of power the appliances draw, But the circuits you don't need to be powered can be turned on or off at the breaker box in your church. You don't need a transfer switch to utilize generators, but if you don't have one, you will need a good deal of power cords and power strips on hand. As a side note, in our church, we have a large building and a smaller building, and it should be discussed which of your buildings are best to build your systems around. For example, which one is able to prepare food and which one is more secure might be things you consider. Some generators are whole home generators. These come in a variety of sizes and are typically either propane or natural gas or even diesel powered. These are usually designed to automatically turn on when the power goes out and turn off when it comes back on. I'm not necessarily a big fan of the automatic nature of these and would rather have complete control over when to turn them on and off in order to avoid wasting fuel. And there are some of these types that give you those options. Let's talk about fuel storage for generators. Propane is the best option for fuel storage. It has an almost indefinite shelf life in its liquid form. Diesel is second best with a shelf life of about 6 to 12 months, with gasoline being the worst with around a 3 month shelf life. Though both gas and diesel can be extended to around 2 years if it's pure gas with fuel stabilizer added and stored in correct containers and correct conditions. While generators are great for short-term, disaster-oriented problems, they are not at all good for more grid-down, long-term situations. The main problem is the availability of fuel. For example, a 20-kilowatt generator, a decent choice to power a medium house, burns 3.5 gallons of propane per hour. So even one of the largest above-ground tanks, a 1,000-gallon propane tank, would last about 285 hours, or about 12 days. Not bad at all for the short term, but for the long term, it's essentially useless unless you can find access to a propane company willing to deliver to you. And of course, similar problems exist with diesel or gas. Those are just not fuel sources that you can make yourself and it requires a working supply chain to access. I think either way, a church should have a large propane tank on the property. Ideally, they should have lines installed to the building with universal couplings that can utilize camp style appliances. This way they can be used for heat sources or for cooking even if you didn't have a propane stove or a propane heater installed if you had the right couplings you could use camp style stoves or camp style heating elements which can be bought at a local big box store ideally your generator would be dual fuel and able to utilize the propane from the large tank on the property it would have its own independent hookups where you could also use propane tanks from barbecue grills of the members of the congregation in a pinch, as well as gasoline siphoned from gas tanks for the maximum versatility. So smaller dual fuel generators and a transfer switch on the building is probably my personal recommendation, but it's a decision you'll need to think through with the experts on your team. Solar power is the ultimate in off-grid power though. If your church building has a large roof and gets a good deal of sun, then all the better. Though the panels can also be installed in an array on the ground, which is less secure, but they would be easier to access for maintenance, which would be especially important if you live in an area that gets a lot of snow. Most solar systems out there are designed to be, quote, grid-tied, meaning that they are meant to save money on your electric bill, and if there is unused energy, the power goes back into the grid and you get credit for it. This is not what you would want. Grid-tied systems cannot be used when the power goes out because they do not have a transfer switch and they don't have a way to store power. It may be possible to have both. I have seen people talk about this by adding a battery bank and certain electronics that allow it to happen, but it's not standard practice. Most solar companies also offer a so-called off-grid solar system, which uses a battery bank to store power for use on cloudy days or at night. These off-grid solar systems can be modular, so you can use them to power pretty much whatever you want, with the limitation being the cost. Solar panels, inverters, lithium ion batteries, and all the gear that you will need is pretty long-lasting stuff, but it would be impossible to find during a bad situation, so the main downside to solar is that it must be installed before something bad happens. Solar is also preferable for security reasons. If the situation you are in involves a scarcity of resources like food, a loud generator would surely draw unwanted attention, whereas solar panels mounted safely on the roof are very hard to notice. And of course, make no noise. As I said, solar systems are quite modular, meaning that you can start small and add to them as you go, though you will need to mention this to your solar tech ahead of time, because it will matter as to the equipment that they will recommend if you want to add to it later. I would recommend contacting your local solar company and having them give you a quote on an off-grid solar system with a lithium ion battery bank. I would also order extra parts for critical systems. That being said, if you have someone in your congregation that really understands this kind of thing or has the capability to learn this kind of thing, you can save a huge amount of money by buying a wholesale kit and installing it yourself. The final thing I'll mention about energy is heat. If you live in a climate that gets really cold, you'll need heat, and it may be the primary thing that your church needs to provide during a short-term or long-term event. The aforementioned large propane tank should have multiple lines ran to space heaters. This could last all winter if used sparingly and with small rooms. But for the long term, the only real solution is a wood-burning stove or similar wood-based heating sources. One of the strengths of this church-based preparedness system is that you're going to have people, that is to say, labor. And it's likely that some people in your congregation already have downed trees on their property that are seasoned and ready to be burned. Admittedly, it's a big step drilling a hole in your church to put a wood-burning stove in, but perhaps you can buy a stove or two with all the tools needed to install it so that you have it in the event that you need it. Water is the next critical system that you can't do without. In the preparedness food storage area, you should have drinking water stored for short-term use. This can be in the form of BPA-free small bottles, or perhaps even the large bottles at big box stores meant for drinking fountains to get more bang for your buck. But if long-term resiliency is your goal, then there are two options to consider. A water well. If you live in an area with abundant and clean groundwater, it's a terrific solution. You can have a well dug on the church property. The downside is that a well pump requires electricity, often a pretty significant amount of electricity. If you have a large enough working solar system, you should be fine. But you can also buy manual well pumps that fit over the well in tandem with your electric pump. This would give you an alternative way to pump water. They also make well pumps that are made specifically for solar power, requiring a lot less energy to pump. I would make sure that you let your well installer know ahead of time the things that you want done before they begin to install it. Another option for a sustainable water supply is rainwater catchment systems. This only applies for areas that get rain, but not that much rain is needed to fill the tanks. And the larger the roof is, the less rain that is needed to get a significant amount of water. Rainwater is also really good if you decide to grow food on the property, as you can water the crops with the rainwater very easily if you develop a gravity-fed irrigation system. The downside to rainwater catchment is that it can freeze in the winter in cold climates, and so some people choose to bury their tanks, but this gets right back into the well pump electricity problem. There are lots of sizes of tanks you can buy and lots of different materials you can use, but you can use just about anything for a rainwater catchment basin. And if you have a good filtration system, then you can use it for drinking water, assuming that's legal in your area. Food is another thing that the church should be prepared to provide to its congregation in a pinch. I think a preparedness pantry or room in the church should be dedicated to this. Some options include dry goods like rice and beans, which can be bought in bulk, like 25 pound bags of rice at Costco. If these items are stored in mylar bags with oxygen absorbers, they will have a shelf life of 10 to 15 years. The bags should be stored in buckets or other pest proof containers. You should have someone who buys these bags and other items and researches which foods are best to be stored in mylar bags with oxygen absorbers. And with a very minimal amount of money, you could have a long term pantry that can last a year. All canned meats, things like tuna, roast beef, ground beef, are the longest-lasting items in any grocery store. The official best-by dates on these cans is often five years long, but there's no known true expiration date. 100-year-old cans of meat have been found and tested for bacteria and have been shown to be safe. There are lots of reasons that they can go bad, though. Dented cans, hot storage. As a rule of thumb, if it's bad, you will immediately know it because it will smell bad. Professionally, freeze-dried food has a shelf life of up to 25 years, but here again, that's just a best-by date. It can be a much longer or shorter time, but freeze-dried food is getting harder to come by these days and costs a lot of money. The best long-term solution is to have enough food on hand to get your congregation through while you spin up your own food production, so you also need to have seeds on hand. You may or may not want to do agriculture at the church. It depends on the church's location and resources. Security is one of the main concerns here. It may be that a member has land not far from the church, preferably in walking distance that you could use. I will briefly touch on security. In a situation where there are desperate people, there will likely be atrocities. The strong will prey on the weak. Men in groups will raid homes and other targets that they see as easy. A church has the ability not to be a soft target. You can appoint men for 24-hour security to guard either the building or the agriculture or whatever. Depending on your electrical situation, you could utilize motion detectors and floodlights and other things to scare people away without it being confrontational. Next up is communication, and I'm gonna gloss over the basics of communication as well. I think you should have, for example, shortwave radios on hand to see what's going on in the rest of the world. Uh, You can see the list from the Freedom Preppers list that I mentioned earlier for more on that kind of stuff. But I'm more interested in communication for ministry because during troubled times, there are likely to be many that will be saved. Uh, People will be ready to hear the gospel. It really will be an excellent time for ministry. And it will look different in every congregation, and it will be based on whatever it is that God has called you to do specifically in terms of outreach. But in almost every case, you will need communication. In the short term, perhaps you could have the ability to print flyers for your outreach programs. I personally think that a radio transmitter setup would be a great idea if FCC rules were no longer in effect because of emergency situations. If you have a person that's really into radio stuff in your congregation, utilize that person. It's a very specialized uh, um, knowledge, and I'm sure they would be very happy to have the opportunity to help in that way. With shelter, I didn't have much to add, but I was thinking that you could allow the church grounds to be a place where people in the congregation could park their campers or RVs, which can serve as temporary housing. If you have a septic tank on the property, these RVs could also utilize that septic tank. If you have, I think it's called a clean out line or something like that, you can have the septic company install it. It's basically just a four inch pipe uh, directly to the the septic tank where RVs can uh, dump their sewers into it. You can also have these rolling units where you could uh, dump the the RV's uh, sewer water into those units and then wheel that over to the septic tank so the RVs don't actually have to move. As far as funding for all this, I think if you begin this work with just a small fund and a few uh, donations, you'll find that others will get excited about it as they work on these projects and would be willing to commit money as well as their time. After all, they will understand the need for investing in this kind of thing for their own family's future security as well. I think a lot of people want to do this kind of stuff at their own house, but for various reasons, they know that it's, it's sort of worthless because in the event of a real situation, they really won't have the ability to do it all on their own. So I think people will see the need for a community in a real event like this. And really churches are the ideal place to make all this happen. They have the labor they have the ability to have actual security. They have, um, a lot of the things that you're going to need for this situation, including people that are willing to band together and have a love for one another. So yeah, I hope this helps out and thank you for your time.